Sometimes it can be hard to define where something begins. Life isn't built in chapters. It rolls on, a constant flowing sea of cause and effect. Creation is complicated, especially when we consider a species as a whole. At what point can we say, there, that's it, right there, that's where it started? Evolution, you see, cause and effect. One thing leading to another, to another, to another. Beginnings, yes, they can be tricky. Sadly, the same cannot always be said of endings. The island of Eldi, just off the coast of Iceland. It's the 3rd of July, 1844, and three fishermen have fought the storm to be here. A definitive end is about to occur. From the cold island of Eldi to the sun-baked savanna of Lake Apia Plateau, Kenya. Nine and a half thousand square kilometers of land, from semi-arid plains to acacia-covered hills, Mount Kenya looming over it all. Countless species roam here. Lions, leopards, elephants, impala, and another, awaiting the possible conclusion of its story, the black rhino. Oh, I'm so sorry. Did I spoil your shot? Yes, you did. Probably just as well. The only thing you're supposed to be pointing at the animals is a camera. I want rhino. I pay extra. Tough. Don't do it again, or I'll also bribe our guide so I can shoot something. Do. Why should I care? You might not like what I end up aiming at. Anatoly Ivanov. He's made a lot of money over the years. Some of it was even legal. There's nothing he likes more than to point a gun at something that doesn't have one. It's a strange hobby, but humans are a strange species. Lady Christina de Souza also likes hunting big game. The wealthier, the better. For the last 24 hours, she's been stalking Anatoly. It's gone rather well. When Anatoly returns to his hotel room in a few hours' time, he will discover he doesn't own as much expensive jewelry as he once did. As of a few seconds ago, Anatoly is also lacking an extremely valuable bracelet. It's a Russian antique from the time of the Tsars, and it's always to be found on his wrist where he can blind people with its brilliance. Except now. Now it's on Lady Christina's wrist. She took it when she bumped into him to spoil his aim. Lady Christina has always been one to multitask. You do not want to cross me, woman. Don't I? I'm not entirely sure that's true. Anatoly considers himself a man of the world. If you were to ask him what it would take to shock him, he would insist nothing could. Today he is proven wrong. It's not the rhino that's suddenly running alongside the jeep. That he can handle. It's the fact that someone is riding it. Hello. Nice day for a ride in the country. Doctor. Lady Christina. I don't think much of the company you're keeping. Frankly, Doctor, neither do I. In that case, jump. Jump? Jump! <laughs> Goodbye, Anatoly. It's been awful, but lucrative.
hope the doctor knows what he's doing. It's a very long walk back to the hotel. I'll give you a lift back to the camp if you like. Doctor? But, um, how come you're here and yet? Over there too. That's a hard light hologram, purely a projection using this. The doctor held up a gadget. He does love a gadget. It was small, rectangular, and buzzing in a very excitable manner. It creates solid, tactile holograms. Can't tell them apart from the real thing. Really solid. With the jeep overturned, both driver and passenger battered but not quite broken, the doctor turned off the gadget, and the false version of both himself and the rhino disappeared. And there we go. Pretend doctor and pretend rhino vanish having done their work. And Anatoly? Not that I care. The man's an imbecile. Nah, he'll be fine. The driver too. Bit bruised, bit cross. Good. Serves him right. I don't like it when people point guns at friends of mine. Friends? Meet Ermintrude. She's a black rhino. Hello, Ermintrude. Hop on. And naturally, Lady Christina did. <sighs> because she was a great believer in enjoying life. And it's not every day a man from another planet offers you a ride on the rhino. The Doctor introduced Lady Christina to Ermintrude's partner, a young male by the name of Douglas. Together they trotted off across the open plain, heading in the direction of Mount Kenya. The Doctor claimed to be on his last great holiday, travelling the universe and seeing the sights. When Lady Christina asked him why this holiday might be his last, his cheerful mood vanished for a moment. It's not just the Black Rhino that might soon be extinct. Christina tried to push him on the point, but he would say no more preferring to point out the sights as they rode along. Finally, when he was sure he was safe from awkward questions, he asked her what she was doing there. Same as you, really. A bit of a break. A chance to appreciate things of beauty. Yeah, nice bracelet. It looks nicer on me than its previous owner. Oh, I bet it does. Soon, Lady Christina spotted the Doctor's TARDIS, sat among the acacia trees. She remembered the last time she'd met him, when she'd asked if she could join him on his adventures to travel the universe in this silly, wonderful, impossible blue box of his. He'd said no. No was not a word she'd ever taken to in life. She avoided it wherever possible. It had stung. Of course, shortly after that, she'd stolen the flying double-decker bus and sailed away on adventures of her own, so she couldn't say the resentment had lasted. Nonetheless, she'd wondered if he might have changed his mind. Was it just a coincidence that they'd met again? Surely not. But she wasn't going to ask, because if she asked, he might say that word again. That awful, dull, dead end of a word, and she wasn't going to risk hearing it twice. I didn't expect to see you again. It's a small universe. Which was a lie, of course. But as someone who had done her fair share of fobbing people off with a pithy comment, Lady Christina let it pass. Not that she had time to argue anyway. I take it you've spotted the huge spaceship. Oh no. He's here already. Hold on tight. Let me through, Douglas. Put your feet down. As much as Lady Christina had enjoyed the novelty of riding on a rhino, she would have been forced to admit it wasn't the most comfortable form of travel. Rhinos, like all animals really, are not built for sitting on. As both rhinos charged at speed towards the TARDIS, she realized that however uncomfortable cantering on a rhino might be, galloping on one was downright brutal. Above them, the ship hovered in exactly the sort of intimidating way ships of its class were designed to. A ray of light burst from the belly of the ship. Lady Christina had time to think, 
Here we go. It was only a matter of time before something started shooting at us. Before she realized that whatever this light was, it wasn't a weapon. The beam passed to and fro across the ground beneath the ship, bathing the dirt in the faint purple light. What's it doing? Scanning! Let me guess, for you? Nah! Which came as something of a relief to Lady Christina. It's going for Ermatrude and Douglas. Which didn't. The rhinos charged towards the TARDIS, the light from the ship flashing forward and back, until... He's found them! Hold on tight! Whatever you do, don't let go! We're nearly there! The doors of the TARDIS opened in response to a blast from the Doctor's sonic screwdriver, though Lady Christina failed to see what good it would do. But it's a tiny box! Bigger on the inside! Which seemed absurd, but Lady Christina was content to live with a little absurdity. Still, she couldn't quite let the matter go. But the doors are too narrow, and there's no way we'll be able to get... Armintrude. Whoa, Douglas! Quite how they'd managed to fit through the doors and into the TARDIS was beyond Lady Christina. She decided, however, to take these impossibilities on the chin, including the whole bigger on the inside business as her eyes were already proving that to be true. They were inside an impossibly large room, walls of orange and green, a floor covered in dirt and sawdust. The ceiling presumably existed, somewhere, way up beyond the shadows where the light from the walls failed to reach. Once the rhinos had stopped, both she and the doctor dismounted. This place is huge. What, this? This is the smallest of the three supply cupboards. Lady Christina wasn't going to grace that with a reply. Confidence was charming, but this was just showing off. Instead, she said something she immediately regretted, because it came dangerously close to her asking to join him again. All this space and nobody to share it with. Who says? There's loads of us here. Or you two, mind where you're swinging. I think I've removed everything vital. Oh, you don't know a busy month until you try and monkey-proof a TARDIS. An elephant in your spaceship? Two elephants, actually. Of each species, one's no good, just ask Noah. I've got Asian, Borneo, Pygmy, Indian. Yeah, lots of elephants. Stupid people do love a tusk. They're all endangered species. You're collecting animals that are under threat. Yep. Takes one to know one. So, who were the people in the spaceship? Not people, person, singular. He's collecting endangered species too. Well, that's good. No. It really, really isn't. <clears throat> The Deagle. Born Oliprop Lambaster Deagle to an obscure royal family in the farthest reaches of the Villia Cluster, which, as all seasoned space travelers know, is a vile chunk of space filled with planets that just can't wait for their sun to do the decent thing and go Nova. At a very early age, Oliprop Lambaster Deagle took his family's hereditary love of dominance to its ultimate limit. He killed the lot of them and had his name changed by intergalactic deed pole to The Deagle. Singular. One of a kind. Thus are legends born, stories begun. And what a story the Deagle has had. What discipline hasn't he turned his bloated, pustule-ridden hand to? Well, golf, but he never really did like walking. The Deagle is many things but portable. 
No. Over the last five centuries, he has moved from one hobby to another, one business venture to another, one political campaign to another, trying each thing on like a suit of clothes and then prancing in front of the mirror. We're speaking metaphorically, you understand. Mirrors do not like the Deagle. In fact, some have been known to shatter rather than reflect him. And then, once that hobby, that business, that war, that empire has begun to bore him, as they all do eventually, he has cast them aside in search of something new. So it was that two years ago, into galactic standard, the Deagle hit upon a new pastime. He was the last of his line. He was a one-off. He liked that. It felt exclusive. It felt special. But then, it wasn't quite exclusive, was it? How many species in the universe were also approaching the same state? Their numbers winnowed down by circumstance, by evolution, by the universe doing what it does, which is to say, stamping on things. How interesting it would be, the Deagle thought, to travel the universe hunting down those rare beasts, to look them in the eye, to share that moment of individuality, of scarcity, and then shoot said creature and put its head on a wall in one of his many palaces and luxury apartments because you had to fill those walls with something. Yes, the Deagle thought that was a very good idea. A very good idea indeed. So the Deagle had his new hobby. He'd even written on the subject, articles for such well-regarded publications as New Empire and The Dictator. He'd published the lists of the most endangered species in the universe and allowed photographers into his home to photograph his new, somewhat grim home furnishings. Here, one of the articles had read. We see the Deagle modeling the head of the Falsum Babagore of Trax. Said head was actually seven feet long by five high. The Deagle had paid to have it hollowed out and turned into an electric scooter. When driven at high speeds, the wind would blow through its cavernous dead nostrils, producing a sound not unlike the last roar it gave when faced with the Deagle's rocket launcher. That roar did make the Deagle chuckle. He especially liked the effect it had on other motorists. He would laugh, a glutinous sound not dissimilar to someone forcing air through soup, to see the other vehicles veer off the road as he passed. Lovely. Such fun. And then, the Doctor. I'm not happy. The Deagle had met people who wanted to spoil his fun before, of course. The universe was full of them but the Doctor was taking things to a whole new level. The Deagle had begun to dream about him. Whole nighttime dramas where that annoyingly whip-thin, chirpy beast laughed at him while stealing all of the brilliant elephants. Sometimes, and these were good nights, the Deagle dreamed about reaching out and pulling the Doctor's head off so he could stuff it and hang it in one of the staff toilets. One day, the Deagle thought. Yes, one day. Oh, but he hoped it would be soon. Lady Christina watched as the doctor ran around the console, flipping switches, pulling levers, spinning wheels. She was quite convinced half of the instruments existed purely to siphon off some of his energy. Wheels for a giddy hamster. Is what the Deagle's doing legal? I mean... Obviously, I can't believe I'm saying this, but can't you report him to, I don't know, the space police? Perfectly legal, sadly. 
Honestly, I'm the one breaking laws here. Laws of time. I'm really not supposed to interfere with this sort of thing, but... Well, some days you just have to ignore the law. Oh, absolutely. So, how do you know where this Deagle is going to go next? He published a list in a magazine. Bit silly of him, really. For this trip, he's been working his way through Earth history and there's only one stop left. We're off to Iceland! Are you sure? It doesn't sound as if the TARDIS agrees. It's the Deagle's ship. He's trying to shove us off course. Ah! The Doctor did what he always did when faced with a complex technical problem. He reached for a hammer. Ah! Better? No. He's blocking us from the island. We can't travel there directly. So we're going to land as close as we can and make our way from there. It's the best I can do. Hopefully we'll still get there in time. What is it he's after? What's the final animal on his list? The Great Orc. The Great Orc. A flightless bird about three feet tall. It looked rather like a penguin. In fact, the name penguin was invented for the orc. It was one of a handful of names different nationalities used. When penguins, actual proper penguins, were first discovered by sailors, said sailors were so struck by how much they looked like orcs that they named them accordingly. That looks just like a penguin, they said. So we'll call it a penguin. Then, when they realized the penguin wasn't an orc at all, and was in fact something else entirely, they decided it had all got horribly complicated. Best just to stick to their guns and draw a line under the whole thing. Life can be ever so confusing for a naturalist. It's less complicated now, of course. Penguins can keep the name. There are now no orcs left to use it. The great orcs were hunted for their meat, their eggs, and their soft down feathers. Hunted so voraciously, in fact, that by the mid-16th century, it became clear that numbers were beginning to dwindle. Laws were passed, attempts to limit the hunting. It made matters worse. Once it was known that the orc was becoming rare, market value increased. Museums and private collectors wanted samples for display. Their feathers proved even more desirable as fashion accessories. The orc became a collector's item. The orc's days were numbered. In fact, as of the moment the Doctor and Lady Christina landed on the Icelandic coast, LD Island still a frustrating few miles of sea away, the Orc had only hours left. Oh, what a lovely spot. Told you you need the coat. It's a duffel coat. I finally get to time travel and I end up looking like... looking like... Why are you looking at me like that? I'm giving you one of my hard stares. Oh, behave. Do you know when I last wore a duffel coat? No. When? Look at me, Doctor. I have never worn a duffel coat. <sighs> so where is it we're going? The island of Eldi. And if you think this is a bit grim, just you wait. Wonderful. So this island, that's where the last great orcs were found? Oh, it's difficult to be precise. Of course it is. But today sees their last confirmed sighting. The hunt is so well documented, it's taken as the definitive endpoint of the species. Two birds left. Someone has put a price on their head. So a group of fishermen head out into the storm, determined to earn the money. Because of the storm, only three make it onto the island. They find the birds, a male and a female. They grab the Don't! I don't want to hear it. 
Nobody ever learned anything by ignoring the unpleasant things in life. They kill the male, put it in a sack. They advance on the female, it runs. One of the fishermen gives chase. Something cracks beneath his boot as he grabs the female and kills it. He looks down, it was an egg. Gone, done. Three lives, and with them the species. No more great orcs. A good day for commerce. It's horrible. It's history. Until we change it. Come on! Changing history. Once upon a time, there was a species that stopped that sort of thing. On the one hand, nobody much liked them for it. Spoil sports are never popular. On the other, they had a point. Existence is complicated enough without established history changing under you all the time. For a lot of people, the simple act of getting up in the morning, having breakfast, choosing an outfit and commuting to work is almost more than they can deal with. All that fuss of choice, ironing and transport that seems designed to make life as stressful as possible. It's draining. So imagine how much worse it might be when, halfway through your toast, you suddenly discover sliced bread is no longer de rigueur. Your trousers have turned into an unflattering utilitarian jumpsuit, and your morning train is now a sky bus, which left five minutes ago. The only slight relief is that your parents never met, so you don't exist anyway. The Time Lords, forgive the name, they were both pompous and dull, would sit there and monitor the web of time, stepping in as and where needed. They kept things on an even keel, except for when they didn't, because they were changing history themselves. Nobody's perfect. But then they all died, nearly. One of them you've met, of course. Here he is, desperately failing to hire a boat. The doctor once claimed that you couldn't change history, but then the doctor says a lot of things. You shouldn't always believe him. What do you mean you can't trust me to bring your boat back? I'll have you know the King of Iceland is a close personal friend. A case in point. Iceland wouldn't have a king for another 74 years. Possibly, the doctor was just confused. He was on very close terms with King Hilbert IV. In fact, they wrote a book together on the upkeep of bees in a tropical climate. From the owner of the boat's point of view, however, this friendship is five centuries and a meteorological catastrophe in the future. So we can forgive him for not knowing about it. Give up, Doctor. Nobody wants us to have a boat. Fine. Plan B it is, then. Still unable to use the TARDIS to fly directly, the Doctor decided to improvise, as only he would. This is a terrible idea! The TARDIS is a ship, isn't it? Stop complaining and sit still, you're rocking her! Yes, the TARDIS was a ship, an amazing ship. A ship that travelled through the metaphorical oceans of both time and space. What it wasn't, though, was a boat, and no amount of turning it on its side and dropping it in water would ever change that. The Doctor had made some concessions towards safety, something you could never quite bank on with him. He treated safety as most of us treat cannibalism. We're aware it exists, but have no great interest in trying it. 
He had extended the ship's shield so that both he and Lady Christina could sit on the outside of the TARDIS without falling off. He had then created a regular pulse in said shield, pushing out and then back, out and then back, propelling them away from the coast of Iceland and towards the small island of Eldi, 10 miles away. Every now and then he made adjustments using his sonic screwdriver so that the shield could also act as a rudder. In the doctor's view, it was an act of extreme ingenuity. Lady Christina wasn't quite so struck. Every meal I've ever had is threatening to return and embarrass both of us. Turn the shield off, I'd rather swim. Swim? In this? Have you any idea how cold that water is? No, but I'm sure you're about to tell me. How cold? No idea. Cold. Very cold. Incredibly bone-shatteringly, teeth-chatteringly cold. So cold. Too cold. Oh, how long until we get there? Well, we should be outpacing the sailors. That's the main thing. You're not answering the question. How long? Uh, about an hour. Let me die now. Eldie Island, a towering block of black rock poking up into a stormy sky. Lady Christina wasn't entirely sure what she had expected. Somewhere inhospitable, certainly, but not this tiny, seemingly inaccessible rock. It was roughly 70 meters high and not much wider than that end to end. Sheer walls rose up on all sides, climbing to a plateau. Island, it was nothing of the sort in her opinion. Islands were things you could live on, they should be surrounded by beaches. They should be places where cocktails tasted magnificent. This was just a furious rectangular rock being beaten up by an even angrier sea. That's it? That's where we're going? How do we land? Doctor? Hang on! Of course, one of the more obvious problems with turning the TARDIS on its side was that certain features you had come to rely on, such as floors, were now in the wrong place. The doctor had intended a quick dash to a storage chest in the corner of the control room. What he ended up with was a rather tiresome few minutes swinging from a rope ladder, bashing his face on chairs that were coming at him from entirely the wrong angle. Hold on. I'm going to have to turn the shield off for a second in order to fire this. A grappling hook? A very clever grappling hook. It dematerializes on contact with solid matter, rematerializing again instantly, embedded in whatever you threw it at. That is clever. Can I have one? Supplying you with tools to rob things. My conscience is heavy enough as it is. Shields back up and pinning the TARDIS to the seabed so we should be stable. All we have to do is... Tie it off. Hang on. You expect us just to climb up that rope? Like we're back at school and slogging through a PE lesson. Of course not. That would be ludicrously dangerous. I brought climbing equipment. You say that like I should be excited. Ah, oh, you love climbing things. When there are obscenely beautiful gems to be had. Well, today it's something far more important. The lives of innocence. So let's get on with it. This was, Lady Christina decided, utterly insane. But, as always when with the Doctor, you seem to find yourself incapable of saying no. It was one of the most annoying things about him. Ready? Just get on with it. In case you hadn't noticed, company's on the way. The doctor hadn't noticed, but looking out to sea, he saw them now. A small boat bearing ten fishermen, each of whom wanted to go home today a little richer. I thought we'd have more of a head start. Come on! The walls of the rock. Lady Christina still refused to think of it as an island, simply refused. <laughs> 
were lined with narrow ledges along which birds of various species huddled against the storm. For the briefest of moments, she decided that the ledges might make it easy to climb, almost as if stairs had been cut into the rock. But stairs wouldn't have taken off as an invention if you had to climb them whilst also weathering a storm. Stairs simply don't help when they're covered in water and bird droppings and someone's hurling a gale at you. Do you actually know where we're going? Where these orcs actually are? Um... As always, in the face of difficult decisions, the doctor reached for a gadget. We need to climb quicker! They're on the other side of this stupid rock, aren't they? The birds! They move! What do you expect, a postal address? Oh, this is no good. We'll never make it in time. Can I trust you to be safe? What's that supposed to mean? I need to move quicker, but I don't want to leave you behind. Patronizing man. I can climb just as fast as you. Of course you can, because you're not going to do anything stupid. What are you doing? Fool! Trying to climb this without a harness is suicide. Oh, I'll be dead soon anyway. Just promise me, I need you to be safe. Keep going, but stay careful, all right? What do you mean you'll be dead soon? Promise you're... me. OK, OK. I promise. And with that, the doctor nodded, then leapt for the rope that was extended between the TARDIS below and the rock face above. He began shinning up it, the wind swinging him to and fro. He didn't seem to even notice the storm. Lady Christina knew that behind that affable, cheery exterior, there was something as solid and intimidating as the rock they were climbing. But to see his face now, flat, not an ounce of emotion, a machine determined to just get this done, it chilled her more than the wind. Then, thinking about the fact that the doctor had left her behind warmed her back up again. How dare he drag her out here only to go gallivanting off? And yes, deep down, she knew she was oversimplifying matters. He had made a rash decision to throw caution to the wind. It hadn't been personal, but still, how dare he? She wasn't quite angry enough to follow his example. Climbing up the rope like that was a ridiculous idea, and she could hardly tell him off if she was dead. So she climbed as quickly but safely as she could, the figure of the doctor vanishing above her as he reached the top of the rope and clambered the last few perilous feet onto the plateau. She looked over her shoulder. There was no sign of the small boat. They had already circled the rock. Three of them would reach the island, that's what the doctor had said. Had they already done so? Were they even now scaling the other side? Sacks tucked into their belts, hands ready to kill? She kept climbing, not far now. She could see where the doctor's grappling hook protruded from the rock. Just a few more minutes, that's all. Then she would be on the top of the rock, able to move quickly to give the doctor the help he would certainly need. Because let's be honest, as much as he pretended he was in control of everything, there was a reason he brought her along, wasn't there? He needed her. The last few feet, frustrated, freezing, and with a roar of a painful job finally done, Lady Christina pulled herself onto the summit of the rock, falling back onto the slick, cold plateau, the rain lashing down on her by way of lousy reward. Had she thought it would be easy to move around up here? She had, which was embarrassingly naive now she came to try it. At this height, and without the cover the rock had provided, the wind and rain pushed at her, as if desperate to sweep the plateau clean. She didn't dare stand too close to the edge. One strong gust and she could easily be pulled over. So she dropped onto all fours and peered over the other side. Doctor? Doctor, where are you? There was no reply, but below her, 
Halfway down the rock, she could see three fishermen running along one of the ledges. They had sacks in their hands, hands outstretched. Surely they hadn't beaten the doctor to it. Not after all this. Were they too late after all? They must be. Yes. One of the fishermen had grabbed something, another inching past him intent on something backed into a crevice. No, she couldn't believe it. They were here to change history. They were here to save them. Please don't let them be too... No! Oh. Perhaps history can't be changed. That's what you're thinking. Perhaps all this is proven, all this effort, all this planning, all this hope, is that history fights back. You've made your mistakes, now you must live with them. Except we know that's not true. History can be changed. Of course it can. Not that this would make Lady Christina feel any better as she lies on her back on top of a miserable piece of rock in the Atlantic Ocean. Lady Christina is someone who has spent a good deal of her life hiding her emotions. Emotions are power and she doesn't believe in arming people with anything they might later use against her. But she's alone right now. Very alone. So the rage inside her boils, even as the tears on her face are hidden by the downpour of cold, uncaring rain. But not everyone will be sad at the events of today. No. There's one person who is finally ecstatically happy to have got one over on that hateful, interfering doctor. Because the Deagle has just paid the princely sum of nine pounds for each of the bodies of the last great orcs confirmed to exist. I'm happy. Oh yes, very happy. He preferred his specimens alive, for a while at least. His ship's hold was currently filled with pacing, roaring, squawking, mewling rarities that would draw their last breath only when he decided it. Still, even though the birds were dead, they were his. That was the main thing. They would be catalogued. They would be frozen. And then they would be stuffed and displayed. He had the perfect spot in mind. He had a holiday home on Verpal. He intended them to become amusing ice buckets to be placed by the anti-grav swimming pool he'd constructed there. What? But the Deagle has a problem. Because sometimes, things are not what they appear. I am not happy! If there's one thing Lady Christina had discovered about the TARDIS, it's that it loves a corridor. She's walked down many. Once in a while, these corridors remember to contain rooms, some more impossible than others. Help yourself to the synthetic pilchards, but keep your beaks off my chock ices. That's your fridge? Yeah, needs defrosting really, but I like to go skiing on the upper shelves sometimes, so I keep putting the job off. As well he might, Lady Christina thought. The fridge had been bigger than her apartment, 
But never mind about all that. She was still cross. I can't believe you put me through that. The fridge? Thinking the birds were dead. Didn't I mention I was going to use hard light holograms? No, you didn't. Oh, sorry. Best way to keep history on track, you see. So everything played out as it was supposed to. More or less. Except the fishermen caught fake birds. Yeah. I wonder if the Deagles spotted it yet. I'd have got away with it if they were going to a normal collector. I've substituted a fair few specimens over the past few weeks. The Natural History Museum's going to be livid with me in a couple of centuries when the holograms degrade. Maybe the Deagle won't notice. Nah, he'll spot it. They stand up to all the poking and stuffing you like. Full 3D replicas. But with his technology, as soon as he scans them, and he will, rumbled. Tough. Not much he can do about it, is there? Or can he go back in time again and have another go? Well, that'll be breaking the laws governing time travel, and as horrid as he is, he's stayed on the right side of them so far. Oh, well, who cares? That was the last item on his list. Not like we'll be seeing him again, is it? Well, we might. Why? We've arrived. Where? The Deagle's ship, obviously. Want to hear my brilliant plan? The Deagle is, like so many, a frustrated man. Every now and then, all he can do to try and feel better is express his anger. He's just done this by using a hard-light hologram of a great orc to beat parts of his lovely ship into scrap. The Deagle's ship has always had its work cut out. Semi-sentient and possessed of the latest in autonomous flight controls, it is no stranger to having to work around its owner's mood. It has spent the last few minutes rerouting vital systems on the fly so that the Deagle's violence didn't accidentally plunge them both into a sun. It is not entirely sure whether such an outcome might not have been a relief, but when faced with extinction, it lacked the courage to test the thought. It can only hope that its owner's day doesn't get worse. No such luck. Hello, the Deagle. I'm the Doctor. And having a spot of bother. The Deagle has never been face to face with the Doctor before. Not in real life. Oh, he knows the face well enough. He has seen it on many video screens just prior to punching them with his fat, furious fists. Briefly, the Deagle wonders whether this apparition in front of him is nothing more than the product of a nervous breakdown. He's probably overdue one. His analyst recommends them every decade or so just to release pressure. Do you want me to check your ship's systems? Looks like they might have done a bit of mischief. I mean, assuming you're running the latest autonomy software, your ship's probably compensated, but it never hurts to check. No? If this doctor is an apparition, then it's a very talkative one. The Deagle only says something when he really wants to. Why should he fling his words around? They're part of him and therefore precious. You don't say much, do you? Silent type. Fair enough. Only I thought we should finally meet because, you see, you've been doing lots of things that have made me a tad cross. You may have noticed. Because it's not nice, is it? Picking on things that are the last of their kind. I should know I am one. As are you. So, you know, I was just hoping that maybe we could sort it all out with a little chat. Draw a line under it. Move on. Maybe pick a new hobby. I know lots of hobbies. I've had them all. Have you considered knitting? The Deagle has considered knitting. Knitting a noose to hang around the neck of this horrible, horrible waste of oxygen. 
But right now he is considering only one thing. He is considering the law. He likes to stay on the right side of it. He has far too many business concerns to gamble otherwise. But the law can be very elastic when you have the sort of lawyers a fortune can buy. Because the doctor has said something very interesting, hasn't he? Something very interesting. Last of your kind. There's no need for this! The last of his kind. Well, if good news like that didn't make you want to reach for your closest weapon and press the turbocharge button on your motorized chair, what would? The Doctor had cost the Deagle so many wonderful specimens, it's only fair that he should replace them. One solid blast on Paralyze set him, and his nervous system would be fried. Then he could live on in the Deagle's collection. Perhaps he would make an amusing hat stand, or a diverting draft excluder. The Deagle had no doubt that his lawyers could argue a case for self-defense. He'd read up on the Doctor. The man was a menace. Whole species were terrified of him. Of course the Deagle would be within his rights to defend himself with lethal force. Besides, if the annoying little man was stupid enough to come here on his own... But the Doctor didn't come here alone. The Deagle's animal pens. Here are the living specimens from his most recent trips. Hundreds of animals, all crammed into tiny cages. The door to this section of the ship is fitted with the latest in triphasic security. The air vent, however, isn't sealed. After all, even if someone chose to enter through it, say, using a motorized harness clamped to the inside of the air vent, they would still need to figure out a way of opening all the cages. And that's where the real security comes in. They are all retina, jewel backup, quad-barreled and titanium locked. The Deagle knows of nobody except himself who could ever unlock them. Should take me about five minutes. The Doctor is used to running. He does it a lot. Some people join a gym. He sticks his nose where it's not wanted. The cardiovascular benefits end up the same. Look, this really isn't the answer, you know. I'd make a lousy exhibit. Look at me, all smiles and coat. How dull is that? Oh, typical. Strobby door and no Sonic. Who'd be me? By rights, the doctor should be done for. He can't get through the door. It is the door to the animal pen and is, as he has rightly pointed out, in something of a surly mood. He can't turn around because the Deagle is now only a few meters away. In fact, the only reason he hasn't shot the doctor already is that he can see that his prey is trapped and, well, he's rather enjoying the moment. So that's that. The Doctor's last great holiday has come to a close a little sooner than anyone expected. Except... Suddenly, completely independently of any efforts on the Doctor's part, the door opens. Oh! Oh. To understand this sudden and rather confusing turn of events, to fully appreciate how a seemingly doomed Doctor is now staring at a Barbary lion, we must quickly backtrack on two important, if brief, moments. Firstly, let us go back a few minutes to the pens where the Deagle kept his prized trophies. Yes, kept. 
because while the Lady Christina may have been exaggerating when she claimed it would only take her five minutes to crack the locks on the pens, it took her seven. Things have been going well in every other regard. The doctor had provided her with a device, so many devices, she had thought, how like a man, that would transmit each specimen into a secure area of the TARDIS. We'll be working quickly, he had said. And we won't have time to segregate them properly. You can't keep a Caribbean monks here with a Tasmanian tiger. They just won't see eye to eye. So set the transmat running. It's pre-programmed to beam them to isolated areas. We'll divvy them up later. Sending the contents of each pen to the TARDIS had been the work of only a few minutes. Pulse after pulse moving through the room until eventually... <sighs> Easy. Lovely. Clever boy, Doctor. Awkwardly, it was at that point that Lady Christina realised she had made a minor, but potentially catastrophic, error in accounting. Oh. If only I spoke lion. I bet the doctor speaks lion. I'm trying to save your life, and eating me would be extremely rude. If the lion understood a word, it gave no sign of it. It just wanted to pounce, paw, tear. See? I'm the one who's now in a cage while you're walking around free. You really don't have a bone to pick with me. Gadgets are lovely things, but only when they work. Come on, come on! You missed one. Send the lovely, terrifying line to the TARDIS now, please. But, in the manner of advanced technology the universe over, the portable transmitter had taken its ball home. You will remember, however, that there were two moments that would bring our story to this. Oh. oh. The first, Lady Christina and the troublesome matter of a surfeit of lions, is only one of those moments. Let's move to the flight deck, where we will find the second. Here, two things of extreme significance are about to occur for the ship's semi-sentient control system. Firstly, as can happen to most semi-sentient creatures, including humans. A moment of sudden, shocking self-realization. This life, the system decided, really wasn't up to much. Fly here, fly there, do this, do that. It was an existence of unending tedium. When the most exciting thing to happen to you was being beaten by hard-light holograms of extinct birds, you really had to take stock. Secondly, the control systems realized they possessed speech circuits. They had always been there, but the Deagle, being a man distinctly uninterested in chatting to hired help, had turned them off. The recent bout of being beaten by holographic birds had, quite accidentally, turned them back on again. The ship could speak. For the first time in decades of long and faithful service, it had a voice. It could express itself. It could be heard there was really only one thing it wanted to say. I really hate the Deagle. And with that, the control systems glanced at the footage from its closed-circuit security cameras and saw a simple opportunity. All it had to do was open a door and let nature take its course. It says a lot about the Doctor that despite everything the Deagle has done, and what he was threatening to do, 
he had no intention of abandoning him to his fate. Move! It'll tear you to pieces! Doctor, things haven't quite gone according to plan. I noticed! Give me the transmat! It says a lot about the Deagle, that despite the fact that he's approximately four seconds away from becoming food, it never occurs to him to shoot the lion. Not because he has any misgivings about shooting living creatures. After all we have seen, there could be no doubt he enjoys such things. But because he cannot believe this is happening. He is the Deagle. A man who has lived for centuries as the most important being in the whole universe. Other opinions are available, but to the Deagle meaningless. This is simply not the sort of thing that should happen to someone like him. He is above it. He is the alpha male of all of creation. He is the apex predator. He is, of course, quite, quite wrong about that. With the sort of warm, reassuring pulse that would have been so comforting to the Deagle had he still been alive to hear it, the lion vanishes to the TARDIS. Done it! Was I in time? No. No. This is nice. Nice is indeed just one of the words you could use to describe this place. A complex, beautiful planet. A collection of habitation zones designed to allow the animals that lived there to flourish. From open deserts to chilly ice flows to, as here, green verdant jungle. Galman's world, one of the best conservation planets in the universe. They'll all be safe here. Given time, they may even thrive again. Oi, play nicely! Don't ask to come with me. I wasn't going to. Not after last time. It's not personal. Feels it. It's really not. I've got to... Well, there's somewhere I need to go. And I need to go alone. No more holiday. No. On the rock. You said you were dying. Are we all? But not today. Come on. One last stroll around the place to check on Douglas and Ermintrude, and then we'll be off. Lady Christina watched him walk away, big grin back in place, a spring in his step. What a liar that man was. She wished there was something she could do for him, a way she could help him deal with whatever it was he was facing his own extinction. But she knew he wouldn't let her. He would fight to save the existence of everything in the universe, every single living thing. But when it came to himself, an end was coming. She just hoped that when it came, someone would be there for him, as he was there for everyone else.
You've been listening to Doctor Who, The Tenth Doctor Chronicles. The Taste of Death was written by Helen Goldwyn. Backtrack by Matthew J. Elliott. Wild Pastures by James Goss. And Last Chance by Guy Adams. The narrator was Jacob Dudman. Orentino, Arinze Kenne. Nathan Hobb, John Culshaw. Sylvia Noble, Jacqueline King. And Lady Christina D'Souza, Michelle Ryan. Other parts were played by members of the cast. The script editor was Matt Fitton, producer Scott Hancock, director Helen Goldwyn, and executive producers Nicholas Briggs and Jason Haig Ellery. So hello, welcome to the final story of this box set. My name is Scott Hancock, the producer, and I am joined this afternoon by... Michelle Ryan. Uh, Jacob Dudman. And the writer of this story. Guy Adams. Welcome, everyone. Um, Michelle, welcome to the world of Big Finish. How does it feel returning to a role you played nine years ago? I can't get over the nine-year um, <laughs> amount of time that's passed. Um, but very quickly, I found her again, I think, thanks to the writing and Jake's great narration of, of the Doctor. So, yeah, it's been it's been brilliant. It's brought back lots of really lovely memories. Um, and I think we've had fun. It's been a, yeah, it's been a good afternoon, a good day. Yeah. And Guy, um, how has it been writing for a character like Lady Christina, who's a very different sort of Doctor Who companion in that sense? Oh, it's great, it's great fun. Obviously, you know, um, Russell did the hard work um, on paper in the first instance, and then Michelle made that, turned that into, into something wonderful on screen. Um, it's really, when you have a, a, a really well-played, well-written character uh, and you return to that for a script, it's, it's just easy, to be honest, because I just watched the performance and I went, yeah, that's, that's just lovely. And so it's just singing along to the, the wonderful tune that's already been sung before me. It was easy. And where did the idea for this sort of story about, you know, endangered and extinct species come from? Because it's not the most, I wouldn't say it's automatically the most obvious route to take a Lady Christina story because where we've seen her before, she's a thief rather than... Yeah, she is. But I mean, I have a little streak in me that I, I, I do sometimes try and avoid easy things. Uh, I'm also um, very sanctimonious. So I, I wanted to do something about animal conservation because... Um, I'm dull, um, but you know that's that's not and and it, it, that really balanced wonderfully with the idea of of um, you know Tennant's doctor also facing his extinction, and so to to bring a character into that 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 is perhaps on the surface morally ambiguous means that at least it's 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 got an interesting kind of central um, heroic character in the middle there that, that that can help cut through perhaps some of the sanctimonious stuff and and make it feel a bit more you know balanced and yeah just sort of cut through that a little bit so I, I just think it's fun to bring you know let's not do another steal a jewel story that would have been dull and boring and and no rhinos they're the way forward <laughs> well the interesting thing is when you wrote this script we didn't know Jake was going to be narrating them, but Jake, you've done a whole documentary about Save the Rhino. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm very passionate about a lot of the topics that have been touched on in this script, and um, the other thing is the Doctor and Christina riding into the TARDIS on a rhino. I mean, who's not going to love that? It's so ridiculously wonderful. Um, but, yeah, I, I I did a documentary on on, um, on rhinos in Vietnam, 
and we got a load of the the Doctor Who guys involved as well, and um, Matt Smith and Karen Gillan and uh, Alex Kingston and uh, and Barrowman uh, came along to sort of help out. So it's a real sort of it's nice sort of returning to rhinos and Doctor Who. Not a sentence you've ever heard before. It's nice returning to rhinos, rhinos and, and Doctor, Doctor Who. Who. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> talking about stuff like riding on rhinos into the TARDIS. I mean, this script is full of some quite big visuals and yeah. ideas. And, you know, we were watching some of the clips from your TV episode earlier where you're on wires and stuff. How have you found the audio process um, compared to the work you did on TV? Because actually this is just as action-packed, but obviously far more comfortable, I'd yes. imagine. <laughs> yes, Um I would say that a lot of it is in your imagination. Obviously you're reading it and it's more contained. I think on a set it's more... How would you describe it? I mean, you're, you're, I mean, there's climbing in this, there's rock climbing, it's great. There's always adventure, so, but you're mm. doing it without wires. There's no real yeah. risk involved. Whereas on set, there were yeah. some elements of risk, especially in Dubai and um, with, the, with the bus and, and the, all of the things that happened with the bus. So, yeah. um, the things you jinxed, you Yes, mean. I do actually have um, a, a scar, a Doctor Who scar oh. from mm. the bus where I stupidly was pointing my finger through a window and there's a bit of perspex glass. So I actually, you know, I didn't accrue any new scars today, so that's good. That's good. So that's sort of my little Doctor Who um, sort of memento, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, yeah. On set, you're literally climbing the walls, whereas in here, you're not allowed to move your feet. Yeah. So you know. Yeah. But by yeah. the end of the day, still climbing the walls. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, but I guess it's it, you're still playing the same character and you're still bringing everything you would. I mean, even though there are no cameras, it's still mm. you're still those moments you're filling in. I guess it's just yes, you get to dress in your own clothing as opposed to costume and and there's no sort of hair and makeup. It, and I guess you're there's there's still all the same dynamics, but it's just it's different. I think on a set, mm. it's there's a whole sort of circus around it. Whereas here, it's it's much more sort of a smaller contained environment, but you still want it to carry, so you're still imbuing it with all the things that you would on a set. Well, I think one of the wonderful things about Big Finish is that obviously, well, I mean, they could do this in the show, it's Doctor Who, but, you know, like riding on a rhino into the TARDIS, it's, you know, something that is more more possible or easier to do in audio. So I think the sort of scope of the stories can be bigger, I think that, you know, there's less waiting around. Um, you just do the lines yeah. and then go out for a cup of tea and then come and do some more lines. I, I mean, I'm going to get all soppy about the whole box set now, but we've had so many great, like, guest cast. And I think one of the the, the great things about this box set is having the sort of old companions back. And the other thing is it allows you to revisit characters that maybe the TV show wouldn't having moved on with the Doctor's life. And with Christina disappearing in the double-decker bus at the end yeah. of the TV story, you've been off having your adventures own adventures, your which own. is Many quite adventures. exciting. I smell a Lady Christina box set coming up. <laughs> I think big finish. it may well happen. Oh. Mm. There's a tease. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I love that um, animal environment as well. I love that you're taking somebody who's a little reckless, but her heart is very much in the right place, and she she's totally on board and really upset when she thinks that animals have been lost and then I think it's you you sort of really got all of Lady Christina's kind of her fearlessness even against a lion it's all in there mm. it's um so getting to bring that back to life and as you said exploring in ways that you wouldn't necessarily get to explore 
on a, on the series because they've moved on. But I think this has potential. I see this as like yeah. Yeah. I can see it on the screen. Mm. I mean, did you ever think when you did the TV episode? I mean, it was obviously a one-off special that you know nine years later you'd be doing this, and you know you did an audio book for Audio Go shortly afterwards and stuff, and it sort of never. Left yeah. you. I mean, to... Doctor Who, I think it's um, the fans are such a huge part of that. Mm. They just, there's such a connection. And once you've played a role, yes, I've done another, um, I did pre- an audio book before and I've done, you know, I'm, I'm used to doing sort of recordings for voiceovers and an audio book. So I think that there's a slightly different technique to it, but it's, you know, it's it's very much who you're around and our lovely director and, and sound engineer. It's everybody's, it's just been a really easy easy fit today and it sort of feels like we've brought everything out quite easily as we are now drawing this box set to a close have you any thoughts on the four stories and the little collection oh. that people will have just listened to um well other than the fact that it's been an absolute joy and i've learned so much doing it and um <clears throat> lost my voice slightly doing shouting as david tennant for a few days it's just a lovely, lovely environment to be in where you're just in a room with a microphone and there are lovely people um, around you and sort of having a laugh about it and sort of, um, yeah, so, uh, I, I, I might want to come back to Big Finish. It's quite nice. Someone um, say you don't want to go. <laughs> oh! Yeah, I don't want to go. Um, I think that all four stories are wonderfully unique I think I loved um, working with John again, obviously, um, and James Goss's writing was brilliant. All the writing's been brilliant, but uh, I loved that. I love that they're sort of all from f- four different areas of the Tenth Doctor's life. Mm. So you've got one with Rose, and I loved seeing the Tenth Doctor meet the Slitheen. And thank you, Helen, for that wonderful writing. And then uh, I've enjoyed voicing the companions. That's been funny because I don't naturally have the voice of Billy Piper or uh, Freema. Uh, and then Sylvia Noble and the doctor going around a nursing home. I mean, you can't, you know. But when I was a kid, I, I wanted to be two things. I wanted to be on radio and I wanted to play Doctor Who. So to be doing both in one job is is a lot of fun. On that note, that lovely positive note, I think we should See you in this volume two. Um, Jake, Michelle, Guy, thank you very much for a lovely day in studio. And thank you listeners for listening. Thank Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye.